Beloved, please turn with me to Psalm 24, Psalm chapter 24, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. And we come to a fairly familiar uh, psalm, uh, one that uh, we are returning to, uh, but uh, one that is so important, I think, in our understanding of the gospel. Uh, Psalm 24, beginning in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you this evening, and we do ask that you would be pleased to speak to us by your Spirit, through your word, that you would humble us, that you would help us to understand in an even deeper way the gospel of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Entering the presence of a king is no small matter. We know from history that those who are invited to, into a king's presence must be cleaned up and well-groomed and smartly dressed and uh, thoroughly prepared to use the finest manners and social etiquette. Uh, sometimes the proper way to enter and to leave the king's presence must be reviewed with the visitor. Uh, some of you like to watch uh, some of those BBC series, uh, and there's some uh, interactions with royalty, and sometimes you'll have the, uh, one of the officials explaining to the one who's about to walk in to see the royal how they are supposed to act, how they're not supposed to act. Uh, sometimes it's uh, humorous watching some American presidents, the way that they break all protocol, and you know, I forget who it was that put their arm around Queen Elizabeth at one point. Uh, during one of the ceremonies, and uh, I'm sure our, our previous president did a lot of foolish things uh, like that as well. Uh, there's just uh, sometimes Americans don't uh, quite know about all the etiquette. They mean well, uh, but this is something that is a, a thing to, to have this kind of etiquette in the presence of a royal. Um, uh, there are uh, sometimes a proper number of times to genuflect, to bow, or uh, there's an inappropriateness to turning one's back upon a royal. And so people are backing out of rooms and bowing and backing out of the, uh, the door. Uh, so it's no small thing to come before uh, an earthly king. It's a privilege and an honor uh, that few people in the world will ever get to uh, experience. Um, when Marla and I were with this dear woman who was a single missionary to India for decades, and she was back in Scotland, and we were in the same church, and we became good friends, and uh, she went on uh, to be with the Lord uh, 
not too long ago, but uh, just a dear, dear godly woman, humble. We were having uh, Indian food over her house. Uh, this is probably about 10 years ago, and uh, Marla went upstairs to use the restroom, and she came back downstairs with a, 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 a framed picture of um, this dear woman with the Queen of England. And uh, we were, had a, kind of a laugh about that. We didn't know this about you. We've known you for so many years. And uh, so she told us the, the wonderful story about meeting Queen Elizabeth and receiving a, a medal of honor from, from her. But most of us have not had this kind of interaction with, with royals. Um, uh, and, it, 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 uh, and properly entering the presence of a divine king, a much greater king, requires much more than nice clothes and sophisticated manners. Uh, so there's, there's something greater, of course. It's a privilege and honor to come before an earthly king, but, but entering the presence of an earthly royalty is nothing, nothing compared to entering the presence of Almighty God. He is the king of kings. He's the one who makes the greatest kings of the earth look like grasshoppers in his presence. And so when we enter the presence of a divine king, we are, we are incapable of providing for ourselves the proper and adequate, adequate clothing. And we need it to be given to us by that king. As we unpack this glorious psalm of ascent, we will learn not only how God is a creator king, but also a holy king and an exalted warrior king. And also how it has been made possible for sinners like us to enter his presence with clean hands and a pure heart. But before we dive into the text, we should take a moment to consider the context and the background of this psalm. You'll notice from the title that this is a psalm of David. Uh, From the two previous psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, which are very familiar psalms, we are reminded of the variety of psalms that David wrote. And the variety of experiences and emotions that David experienced as God's servant and Israel's king. Charles Spurgeon wrote that by the, quote, enablement of the Holy Spirit, David touched the mournful string in Psalm 22, poured forth the gentle notes of peace in Psalm 23, and here in Psalm 24 uttered the majestic and triumphant strains. The Psalms do indeed minister to us in all ranges of emotion and times of sorrow and confusion and anger and joy. This is why we should always be reading the Psalms and singing the Psalms. The Psalms minister to us, to the deepest parts of our soul and human emotions. Calvin commented that, quote, "...what various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury, it is difficult to find words to describe." I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. If you are going through a time of distress, a time of heaviness, challenging time, times of joy, times of uncertainty, Any kind of time that you can imagine, you go to the Psalms and you will find language there in which you can pray to God and know that you are not alone in what you are experiencing. And it is so encouraging. This particular Psalm, Psalm 24, is thought by many to have been written when the Ark of the Covenant 
was escorted by King David from the house of Obed-Edom to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, an event you can read about in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. Some think, however, some scholars say that this is uh, merely uh, an, a liturgical psalm reflecting upon God's kingship over Israel and used in temple worship. Whatever the case may be, this psalm has much to teach us about the character of God and the way in which he may be approached, known, and worshipped. There are three simple points I want to make as we seek to understand this psalm of David. They are this. God is a creator king. God is the creator king, verses 1 and 2. God is the holy king, verses 3 through 6. And God is the triumphant warrior king, verses 7 through 10. And we're going to see how the gospel is so plain in Psalm 24. God is the creator king. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Here, David praises God, uh, praises God as the creator, the upholder, and the owner of the world and all that is in it. Unlike the false gods of the pagan nations, the regional gods that you read about all over Scripture, the God of Israel is the living God, is the true God, is the maker of all things. This is the kind of contrast that you see over and over again in the New Testament, in the Old Testament especially, but also in the New Testament, that you have all these gods, small g, these regional gods, these pagan gods, and then you have God who is over all. And that you see this language, it seems strange to us, even to say in the Psalms that, uh, that God is above all gods, as if those gods are actually real. Well, they're not real. Uh, and uh, God is above all of these false gods, these regional gods that are, are the, the artifacts of uh, the imaginations of, of men. But here David praises God as creator. Uh, with an allusion to creation and Genesis 1 verse 9, David tells us that at creation, God brought order from chaos, bringing forth the land from the waters, only God can bring order and land from the unruly seas and rivers or floods. That's what this is conveying here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell within. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God made everything. And so it follows that he is the rightful owner of everything. If a man builds a house with his own resources, he is the rightful owner of it and can do with it as he wishes. God created the world out of nothing. In the span of six 24-hour days, all for his glory, he made it. He made all who dwell in it, and thus the fullness of it is his. Calvin, in his Institutes, expressed that the world was created by God to be a kind of grand theater, showcasing his glorious acts of creation providence, and redemption, a place to stage his magnificent drama of salvation through Jesus. Many may hold title deeds to their property, as many will in this room, but in reality, God owns it, for God owns every square foot of planet earth. It is his. Every square inch 
of the world is his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice that God not only owns the world, but he also owns all who dwell in it. Mankind may think that they are autonomous and free in every respect, but they are wrong if they do. For God is a sovereign king, even as we learned this morning. God is sovereign. He's a sovereign king over all of his creatures and has the right to do with them as he pleases for the glory of his son and the building up of his church. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 9. When he asks, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God is our creator, king. And this should bring us great joy and comfort this evening. All the resources of the earth are at his disposal. And he will use them as he sees fit. Indeed, he will use them to assist in the nurture and growth of our faith. Because he created all things and owns all things and all people and they are at his divine disposal, we should always trust him because he loves us, because he's for us. God is for us. Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? We say, well, pastor, a lot of people can be against us. Well, we covered that a few weeks ago in Romans. It's true there's opposition to the church, but the point is, if God is for us, what opposition can defeat us? What opposition can separate us from the love of God? The answer is not one, not one bit of opposition. There is opposition, there is suffering, there is persecution, there's distress, there's tribulation. We have read there's death. We've read all about this in Romans 8, and we're reminded that nothing can separate us from God's love. If God is for us, And God has created the world, and the whole world is at his disposal. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all who dwell therein, and and he is for us, then we can trust him. God is the creator king. Secondly, God is the holy king. This brings us to the second point in verses 3 through 6. Look with me now at verse 3. David asks a question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place. We have this creator God, almighty God. Uh, the earth is his and the fullness thereof. He has made it for himself. He owns it all. He owns everybody in it. How then do we approach this holy God when we know that we are sinful? Who can approach God? Who can have fellowship with the holy and sovereign God of the universe? Who can rightly enter his presence? Well, many think that anyone can approach him, irrespective of their beliefs or attitude or spiritual condition. But this view does not take into consideration what we are reminded of every time we gather, and that is that God is holy. God is holy. He is not just a king. He is a holy king. And that can be said of no other king Ever. As we study the royalty or the royals of any nation throughout history, no king is holy except this king. He is a king that is perfectly righteous and just and unable because of his holiness, because of his justice, because he is God, unable to allow even one sin to go unaccounted for. 
Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In other words, because of God's holy and just nature, God cannot excuse sin. He must punish the guilty or he would contradict his very nature. And that is impossible. God's holiness demands that not just anyone can approach him and have fellowship with him. No, verse 4 states, what does verse 4 state? Who can approach God's holy hill? He who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. And he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Approaching God requires much more than a new suit and a show of proper etiquette. In fact, understood rightly, what is required here in its fullest sense is impossible, dear ones, for us to do on our own. For what we need is an inner cleansing of the heart. Indeed, we need a new heart. A sinful and blackened soul made pure. Hands stained with sin made clean. And a deceitful tongue made pure and honest. One might ask then, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us? How, how can we approach God on these terms, on these conditions? How can we ascend the holy hill? You say, Pastor, I don't have clean hands and, and a pure heart. Every day I'm reminded of that. Well, here is where the gospel becomes so precious, so rich, so full, so glorious, and so apparent in our text. What we cannot do because of our sin and guilt, Christ has done through his sinless life and atoning death. Please hear this, beloved. Christ, the second Adam, fulfilled all righteousness for us. He met the righteous standard of God's law on our behalf, and so he ascended the hill of the Lord as your and my representative with clean hands and a pure heart who lifted not his soul to what was false and who never swore falsely. Who can enter the presence of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart? The answer is, Jesus, our Savior, He is the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord because He's the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. But that's not all that Jesus did. It was not only God's holy hill that He ascended, He also ascended the hill of Golgotha, the cursed hill where He was brutally nailed to a wooden cross, the, uh, what Psalm 22 so clearly speaks of. He ascended that hill and hung on the cross with our sin and shame on his shoulders. In order to save us from God's wrath and just judgment and curse, Christ became a curse for us. Christ became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Christ bore the full measure of God's wrath in our stead. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is because of Christ's righteous life and substitutionary death that we too, by grace through faith, may ascend 
God's holy hill. We must get this. We cannot ascend on our own. We cannot ascend God's holy hill on our own. We must be united to Christ. Remember this morning I was speaking of union with Christ, that Paul understood his Christian life, his whole uh, conception of salvation was, was, was built upon and, and, and through the lenses of union with Christ. It is in union with Christ that we ascend the holy hill and we worship God and we commune with God. We try to go on our own. All we have are dirty hands and an impure heart. But in Christ, by grace, through faith, we are forgiven of our sins. We are counted as righteous because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ and we stand before God justified. It's because of Christ that we, as it states in verse 5, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism's question and answer, 33, on what is justification. Justification, it says, is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So outside of Christ, all we have are our unclean hands and an impure heart and, 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 and our, our minds, our hearts, our wills, everything affected by sin. We're united to Adam and we, we cannot ascend the holy hill. We are not allowed to enter God's presence in this state. But Christ ascends the holy hill as our Savior and we are united to him by grace through faith. And so we are counted as righteous We are brought into the presence of God through our mediator. God's elect are the generation who seek the Lord, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. They are the generation, we are the generation that have received the inward cleansing of the Spirit through Christ's blood and the robe of Christ's righteousness, thus granting us the freedom, the wonderful freedom to ascend God's holy hill to have communion with God. One writer comments, quote, faith stands by the fountain filled with blood and as she washes therein, clean hands and a pure heart, a holy soul and a truthful tongue are given to her. God is the creator king. God is the holy king. And finally, in verses 7 through 10, we learn that God is the triumphant warrior king. Look with me again at verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Our Lord Jesus came down to earth to save his people. And he will bring them as in a procession into glory. All of them one day on the day of resurrection. And what a day it will be. What a day of rejoicing it will be. Again, here we have what... Many believe is a foretelling of the triumphant procession of the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. 
entering the gates of heaven's ageless doors. God has always been the king of glory, conquering his and our enemies. He fought on behalf of his people when he delivered them from mighty Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. He won many battles for his covenant people when David was king of Israel. But all these battles were only a foreshadowing of the greatest battle that would be fought and won by our Savior, the Prince of Heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who is strong and mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory who conquered his enemies and ours, the enemies of sin and hell and Satan and death. Just imagine the glory, the pomp, the circumstance that there must have been when Christ came back into heaven after accomplishing redemption for his people, after accomplishing the work that his Father had given him to do even before the foundation of the world. Imagine the singing of the heavenly hosts and the departed saints. What a scene it must have been. Puritan Christmas Evans. What a wonderful name that is, Christmas Evans. I just think if your name was Christmas, I would be happy every time they said your name, right? Christmas Evans. Listen to what he says. Quote, In the 24th Psalm, we have an account of the actual entrance of Christ into heaven. When the king of England wishes to enter the city of London through the temple bar, the gate being closed against him, the herald demands entrance. Open the gate. From within, a voice is heard. Who is there? The herald answers, the king of England. The gate is at once opened and the king passes amidst the joyful acclamations of his people. This is an ancient custom and the allusion to it is in the psalm. And then we have Spurgeon commenting on what it must have been like with the ascended Christ coming through the gates of heaven. The angelic herald and his heavenly escort demands entrance. Lift up your gates, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The heavenly watchers within shout out, Who is this king of glory? The angelic heralds answer, The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Then the ancient gates of heaven are opened up and the ancient doors are lifted and the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son, heaven's prince, enters amidst the deafening praises of heaven's inhabitants. Oh, what a scene it must have been. As the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord entered the gates of heaven. And oh, how wonderful it will be one day when at the resurrection, when he returns and brings his people home through those same gates. And those same kinds of words are said, Who is it? Who is this King of heaven? It's the Lord. Open the gates. And it's his people coming with him, those for whom he died and rose again. Beloved, it is by grace through faith in Christ, our risen and conquering King, that we are taken by the hand and led up the holy hill, up the holy hill of the Lord into fellowship and communion with God. And isn't this the progression of the glorious Psalms of Psalm 22, 23, and 24? Psalm 22 being the psalm of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They divide my garments. A psalm that so clearly foretells and... Uh, anticipates Calvary. And then Psalm 23, the psalm of the, the good shepherd, 
The Lord is my shepherd, and in him I lack no, no good thing. And, and then Psalm 24, the psalm of the triumphant king. James Boyce put it this way, Psalm 22 is the song of the dying shepherd, giving his life for the sheep. Psalm 23 is the song of the risen shepherd, leading his sheep to green pastures and beside still waters and through dark valleys. And Psalm 24 is the song of the ascended shepherd who defeats all our enemies and triumphantly leads us through the ancient gates of heaven and into eternal glory. Rejoice and take comfort, beloved. In this valley of tears, in this field of thorns, with all the challenges, the distress, the persecutions, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not worry and anxiety burden your souls. We serve a faithful God. We serve an exalted and triumphant and a great King and Savior who will one day return to take us home in what will be a greater procession than the world has ever seen. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts, the one who Robert Berry gazes upon at this very moment and is awestruck with the beauty and glory of his Lord. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for Psalm 24. And as we have reflected upon it for a few minutes this evening, we pray that it would minister to our hearts, that it would compel us to trust you, you who are the one true and living God, the, the creator king. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all who are therein. And so we can trust you with our lives and circumstances. And Father, we thank you, O oh God, that while the question comes, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, we know it's Jesus who can because he has clean hands and a pure heart. And he brings us with him, for he ascended also the hill of Golgotha to die for us, to pay the debt of our sin, and to make us right with God through the blood of the cross. And so we thank you that while you are holy, we are invited up to ascend the holy hill because we are in Christ, forgiven and robed in the very righteousness of your Son. And we thank you, Lord, for your son who is the triumphant king, the warrior king who has won the battle and who enters the gates of heaven and one day we shall enter with him there. And oh, how we long for that. Oh, how we long to be in the presence of your son, in your presence, Father, and in the presence of the Spirit. We pray, oh Lord, give us hearts full of faith, full of trust, even as we walk through this valley of tears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.